the biggest kind of mistake from a high level is you don't treat it as a core competency or you both put it on a pedestal and also treat it as this thing that we just do quickly and then move on from. And the thing you have to understand about pricing is that pricing is not to sound soapboxy or preachy, but it's the very essence of what you're doing as a business. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're talking all about pricing, and we have a great guest with us, Patrick Campbell, who is a CEO of ProfitWell, which was just acquired by Paddle. So welcome, Patrick. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to chat about all things pricing and whatever else we want to go down. Yeah. So how did you get into pricing? I feel like that's a very specific niche to get into. Well, you know, it's funny. I never wanted to get into business. I was never, I have a union dad. So like management and business is evil, that type of thing. Um, not too, I'm joking, but not too far off. I ended up getting a background in econometrics and math. So great party guest. That's what that's code for. And ended up basically going and working in Intel, US Intel in DC. So I worked at NSA right out of school. Before that, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then there were more lawyers than jobs. And so I was like, oh, let me go like work for the government. Hated it. Loved the job, but just bureaucracy of government. So I thought, oh, let's go to this tech company. It must be so much better. And that tech company was Google, which you know was 30,000 people at the time. So very bureaucratic as well. So I jumped into the startup scene. And the first company I worked for was this company called Jimvara, which was a competitor to Blue Nile. So Blue Nile, they're jewelry companies, and their kind of thing is they have customization. So you can customize the stone and the color and all this other stuff. So they gave me, this kid, basically a couple years out of school, this pricing problem, because at any one point, there was like 1.6 million different SKUs based on all the permutations and stuff. So we would make these little changes when it came to price, and we would see these giant swings in revenue up or down, depending on what we did. And so I wasn't really enamored with the culture there. And you're seeing a theme. This is, this is more about me than I think these places. And basically it was like, well, you know, I was in my early to mid 20s. Like if I'm going to do something, you know, I don't have a mortgage, don't have kids, like I might as well jump in. And this pricing thing seemed like a thing that people didn't know a lot about, but they thought it was important and it actually had impact. Like, let's start exploring that. So I kind of jumped in with little to no knowledge of it and started exploring which is kind of funny. And to round this out, it was funny because I started posting content about pricing because we started just using we as in me working 18 hours a day in a room, started just kind of publishing content to bring people in. And what was really funny about the content was these pricing PhDs would be like, this is the most basic thing that you just published. Not in a mean way, but sort of in a mean way because they're pricing PhDs, right? But then all these product leaders and these marketers and stuff would be like, this is amazing. You just synthesize all this information down to like a 1200 word blog post. This is great. I'm going to take this to my board and you know figure out what we should do. So that's kind of when it really was like, okay, there's a market for this. It's just not amongst pricing people. That's really interesting. So 
you were studying the pricing, you started to write about it. What made you start ProfitWell? And I think ProfitWell, you started as a consulting business. It wasn't a pure Yeah, it's one of those things like I haven't given up on it yet. It wasn't a consulting business. We had a software product, but yeah, it was a services business. So created this piece of software that allowed you to do pricing research, basically. So you would send out a survey, the data would come back, it would crunch the numbers and give you like an elasticity curve and, and some other insights. We started trying to sell that. And what I found was basically people were like, I don't want to do the work to get the data. And we're like, well, what if I did the data, got the work and did the data for you? But I don't want to interpret the data because there's a lot of fear when it comes to pricing because pricing sits at the intersection of uncomfortable and important. And whenever you have something at that intersection, people get kind of scared and anxiety to do anything. So they were like, can you come in and like basically settle an argument? And I was like, oh, VCs don't like services. We can't do services. I didn't say that to them, but that was in the back of my mind. And then they were like, we'll pay you a lot of money. And I was not funded. I didn't know anything about how to get funding. And so I was like, okay, well, let's just do this. And I can get paid basically to do customer development, which was great. So yeah, started doing services and then that started kind of taking off and, and kind of started fueling and really funding the business. That's awesome. I really love that growth story too about it. So when you were going in and doing this customer development, they basically just hired you to come in, figure out the pricing problems. And then how did you translate that into a software product and what did your software product do? So we started to realize that the survey method was really effective because we were kind of competing against more just inertia than anything. Like when you think of getting help with pricing, most of the time it's, oh, I got my MBA with this guy or the gal and they're working at McKinsey or they're working at Simon Kutcher and it's going to cost 300 grand just to kind of get a six-week assessment. And then to get the actual data, it was going to cost probably another half a million. So we were kind of like, we're not going to take you out to dinner. We're not going to like handhold you. If you really need that, you should go and purchase from those folks, but we'll get you the data and we'll do it in a cheaper way. So it didn't start overnight, but it got to the point where we were doing our average deal size might, maybe was $200,000 for a year. And we were delivering a bunch of this data and a bunch of this kind of content. But what we quickly realized is there were two things. One, we were like, how do we get this data in a cheaper way? How do we get real pricing data? And this kind of led to this to kind of skip to the end, how do we create a unified theory of subscription growth? Because every subscription company kind of thinks about their business very similarly. LTV, CAC, MRR, these types of things. And the influences on those things are all very similar. So we were thinking, well, if we could get different data, maybe we wouldn't need to send the surveys. And while this was happening, we were helping a company that was about to IPO with their pricing. And we found out that they were calculating churn and MRR completely incorrectly. And for those of you who aren't in the SaaS space, that's basically like opening up your bank account, reading the number and getting it wrong. Like they're super fundamental numbers for a subscription business. To make a long story short, we kind of started putting these two things together and we're like, well, what if we created this analytics product that would get us this data? And we were like, well, which data? And every model we came up with and just did very basically was, well, Top of the funnel data is great. Engagement data is great. But really the financial data, we're going to need to do anything interesting. And so it was like, let's get the financial data. And we were going to charge for that product. But we basically discovered that no one wants to pay for analytics tools. Like they're notoriously terrible tools. We were sitting down with an investor from Emergence just because we wanted to get more business from their portfolio. She was amazing. She was just like, yeah, you guys should not do this business. Because <laughs> she's like, this is, can't raise money. 
No one wants to buy it. They all have to go enterprise. This is why we were like going to give up or go enterprise or the third option was give it away for free because now we could get more data in which each incremental customer on that product, which is a financial analytics product, our algorithms all got better when it came to our pricing product or our churn reduction product or things like that. So yeah, a little rambly there, but that's like the most succinct three-year story in two minutes there that I can give. So what did you end up doing? Did you give it away for free to like boost yeah. the algorithms? Yep. It was given away for free. Right now it's got 37,000 companies using it in the past six, seven years. And it's improved. Our pricing algorithms are now, it depends on how you look at it, but right now our accuracy is like plus or minus 3%, which Amazing. is great. And like just off the shelf pricing algorithms might be plus or minus 30%. And it's just because of the data and refining all this stuff um, many, many different ways. But that was actually a really hard transition to kind of speak a little more broadly from a product perspective, because it's really quote unquote easy to build like a services business or an agency because you're filling people instead of products. You're like, well, I don't know how to build that product, even if it's a spreadsheet. So I'm just going to put a person here to make some judgment calls. And then you can get pretty addicted to the cash flow because you can sell $100,000 contracts. And so all of a sudden you can get some pretty decent profit. So what really took us was really having a wider vision to be like, no, we need to use this to get to a software business. And this is where a lot of people make mistakes with services business when they start that way. They get too addicted to the cash flow. They end up not really thinking of how to productize everything. And they just end up being a services business. For us, it was like, we have a mission. And that's what kind of led us to keep going aggressively towards product. Yeah, that's a great mission. Having run a services business myself, I definitely feel that pain. But I got to a point where I was like, I have no good ideas for products that we could build, right? Yeah, it's hard. I think getting paid to do customer development is kind of my favorite because like the amount of boardrooms or exec team meetings that I was in as like, honestly, a kid who shouldn't have been there. But I was like bringing this expertise that all of these smart people didn't have confidence in. It was just an amazing thing like to see like the questions they were asking. And I couldn't treat it like a product manager as much as like I probably should have because I still had the kind of, I don't want to say front, but like put up a bit of a front, you know, in terms of being confident. But it was one of those things that accelerated the business pretty substantially. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? They tell you when you start businesses, do things that don't scale. So sure. you were basically doing that at the beginning was, here's all the things that we can learn and then we can put the gas on it and actually scale it, which yeah. worked out pretty well. So you, you got acquired by Paddle. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. There's a lot of things we could talk about there. So Paddle, like our mission ultimately to kind of give a little bit of context was to grow subscription companies automatically. So you should have been able to plug ProfitWell in, you get all this cool reporting for free, and then the products you pay for automatically lower your churn, automatically optimize your pricing. When I say automatically, I mean, you don't have to set up emails, a WYSIWYG editor, you don't have to set up workflows, like it just does it. I think that's really the future of a lot of product where we're headed, because it used to be you had to like show your boss you're doing work. Look at Salesforce's design. Salesforce's design for the VP of sales or the director of sales to like, look at their reporting and you have to like deal with putting all this stuff into all these different fields. That kind of software is just, it's not going to exist in like 20 years. It's going to be all about, I need to focus on my customer, my product, et cetera. So we were like, you plug it in, you should grow. Paddle is very much, you plug it in and you run your business automatically. All of your taxes are taken care of, all of your financing, your payments, your currencies, your different currency conversions, everything like that from a billing perspective is taken care of. And so 
you can kind of see where this is going. And, you know, the combined vision is very much to like run and grow subscription businesses automatically. And we weren't looking to sell. We're actually looking to raise money for the first time. So we were bootstrapped the entire journey. And when Christian kind of approached me, the paddle CEO to like sell, the ego kicked in and I was like, oh, you can't, you can't have my baby. But as soon as we kind of started thinking about it, my business partners and I we were like, well, this is another way to get funding basically and take some money off the table and stuff like that. So we ended up doing that and diligence was terrible as it always is, but that's just kind of how it is. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And yeah, we sold for, for 200 million in May of this year. So that's kind of the headline number, which is great, which worked out really well being bootstrapped. I think if yeah. we were funded, it wouldn't have been as cool. Still cool. Don't get me wrong, but not as cool. So yeah, it's been a fun year. It's a really good year. Yeah, that's a really good year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No complaints. Only champagne problems. Yeah, that's good. You've been doing this for quite a while. When you look at how people are doing pricing, especially for subscriptions, what do you find are the biggest mistakes that they start to make? The biggest kind of mistake from a high level is you don't treat it as a core competency or you both put it on a pedestal and also treat it as this thing that we just do quickly and then move on from. And the thing you have to understand about pricing is that pricing is not to sound soapboxy or preachy, but it's the very essence of what you're doing as a business. What I mean by that, you've created some sort of value. And because we don't trade goat for wheat in most of the economies that we play in, you're basically saying like, this value is worth this much money. And then when you think about that one layer down, that means that everything in your business is used to drive someone to a point of conversion or for a purchasing decision or to justify the product or the price. And so there's all these different value vectors around who you sell to, which vertical you go into, what part of that vertical. Do we include these features in this tier or this tier? Do we pull them out and make them add-ons? Do we localize in this currency versus that currency? And then those are all things apart from the actual price. And the thing you should think about when you're thinking about, are we doing monetization or pricing properly is, is your average revenue per user or customer or ACV, however you're measuring it, is that number going up over time? When you start to kind of realize that, to answer your question, you start to realize a lot of businesses, they don't treat it as that core competency where they're trying to improve that number every single quarter. That number is typically very flat within a business. I would argue that if you started small and were just we're going to do one thing per quarter, which is the average amount of experimentation the best companies at pricing do. This quarter, we're going to figure out our value metric. Next quarter, we're going to figure out our add-on strategy. The next quarter after that, we're going to figure out our actual price, what it should be. Then the next quarter after that, we'll figure out our discounts. Then the next quarter, and so on and so forth. You find that you make those gains to make that ACV or that ARPU go up. And the best way to kind of do this, which a lot of people don't do, is with unfortunately what's called a pricing committee because pricing sits at the center of so many different things. If there isn't like a committee and someone kind of running with the football, you're just not going to end up having any progress. If you kind of go it alone in product, you'll come up with the best data and the best idea. Then you'll go to John and sales or Sally and customer success. And both of them will be like, whoa, wait a minute, we can't make this change because they didn't feel like they were bought in. And they might have actual feedback that's really valuable. Most oftentimes they do. But even if they don't, they're just not going to feel like they're going to be able to implement this. And they're the ones who have to implement this. So committee is typically made up of everyone who you think was obvious, sales, marketing, finance, normally product, definitely. The people who kind of own the decision, product and marketing. And then normally you have a product or a marketing manager for 20% of his or her time just owning pricing. 
that's all you really need. And I know that sounds like a lot, but four meetings a quarter, 20% of one person's time, and you get to grow your the very like serious growth lever that you're not really using right now. It's just an amazing trade-off. And that little bit of process is a big mistake we made in the beginning because we would we would work with our POC, which was normally in product or marketing. Then we'd be like, hey, here's this perfect data. And then they would go try to implement it and they would just run into all these internal politics. And we were like, well, have a better culture. And it's like, even the best cultures have politics when it comes to this stuff because everyone's a little scared of what they're doing. The last kind of mistake people make or the misconception is your customers know things cost money. It is so patronizing <laughs> to not talk to your customers about pricing and be like, well, we can't do it because they're going to like leave. You're not doing it because you're uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's really just like there are ways you can ask about willingness to pay. There's ways you can ask about pricing in order to not make it weird. And then you can raise prices. And if you just communicate with your customers directly and you make it about them, not about you, all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I don't want to pay more, but I will because you're creating that value. To give you a benchmark, you should be doing some experimentation about with your monetization once per quarter, and you should straight up raise your prices once per year. So there's just a lot of things that you should be doing, at least based on the data that we see with the best companies out there. Is there ever a case where raising your prices too often causes a lot of churn? I'm thinking of MailChimp right now. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps raising their prices on I me. Know. Like it feels like every four months. <laughs> That's the post exit. That's what happens, right? There was a company called Gumroad that just raised their prices. That was a big brouhaha. I can name plenty. I, I don't want to name and shame as much as I can. But so the short answer to your question is yes. You can raise prices too much. And the thing to kind of think about, let's say we're not going to do any other pricing experimentation, but we are going to do a price increase. You want to collect data from your current customers and also people who are your prospects who are not using your product right now. And the reason is, is because what you'll typically find in most businesses is that all of a sudden your current customers will be anchored close to where you're priced now because that's what they're paying. And then the prospects for your target customers are probably willing to pay considerably more. And nine out of 10 times, someone's going to go, well, the data must be off, right? Well, the data is not off. It's just you never set your prices properly. So your customers are anchored to what they're paying, but that's not what the willingness to pay in the market is. You then have kind of a decision to make. Most of the time, what you should do is you should raise the price on your new customers immediately. Your existing customers, you should think about not going after more than a 50% increase per year. So you might have to increase those prices over three years, unless you're going to rip the Band-Aid off, which some people choose to do. If there's a ton of product development, you can do more than one increase per year. And there's a ton of things you can do that are effective increases, meaning it's not like a straight up price increase. You like lower the amount of emails you get in a tier. That's an effective price increase, but it doesn't feel like that to the customer. So it doesn't mean we're not going to effectively raise the price, but it does mean like a straight up, hey, customer, you've gotten a ton of value. Here's all the data you have in your product. Here's the new features that launched the past six months. We're raising prices. That you can really only do once per year because customers, they churn. But I will say, even if you lower your prices, you're going to see churn. You're reminding people they're buying something. Same thing that if you sent all of your receipts on the same day of the month, that's your highest churn day. You're just reminding people. But if you're doing this properly, which is at least a 10% increase, if not more, the churn normally is not bad. And we'll see actually in the data, churn will go down after that increase of churn, that little bump, because you kind of got rid of the fence sitters. And then if you change nothing about your funnel, 
the churn will slowly increase back to where it was previously because you're getting kind of the same types of customers in your funnel. That's really interesting. I feel like it, it comes down to, to me, this is what it seems like, a price versus value justification. If you're going to raise your prices on me, what's the value you're providing? And is it justifiable to what you actually want to charge? And I just had the thing where we're on Teachable for Product Institute and we're actually building our own. They just raised prices as well. They just raised yeah. their prices too. I've been on them since 2016 and their product has just steadily gotten worse with the bugs. They have never fixed their API. It goes down all the time. We have to email them. And then that price increase comes and I'm like, well, it's definitely time to get off. So when you're thinking about your value justification versus price increase, what can companies do to make sure that sounds like the survey, but like, what should they do to make sure that the value is there for that price increase before they attempt something like that? Yeah. The hardest part, but the most impactful thing is to make sure your pricing aligns with some sort of value metric. So value metrics, how you charge. And I think Teachable, it's based on how much money revenue kind of flows through. So it's a really pure value metric. It's like, hey, you made $100,000, we're taking $4,000 or whatever it ends up being. And not everyone has an elegant value metric like that. HubSpot, it's contacts, right? Wistia, it's videos. But I think the reason you want that value metric is because when I go to raise prices, I want to collect a little bit of data to understand where my pricing power is. And that basically means people are paying 100 bucks, but the willingness to pay is 200. My pricing power is 100 bucks. And if it's like, non-existent, like $105 is my pricing power. I'm not going to change, you know, my price because I don't have I don't have any power there. Now, if it's 10% or more, then I have some power that I want to go after. But then it becomes like making sure that my customer is in the best position to take the price increase well. And that includes looking at NPS data, CSAT data, bug data. Like if we had just had a major outage, we're pushing that price increase three to four months away. But people don't think about this. They're just like, yeah, well, it's scheduled. We have to follow the schedule, right? If NPS is low, typically you don't need that high of an NPS to raise prices, but NPS over 20, you should be raising prices. And NPS of 20 is not great, but it's not terrible. But then I would want to look at individual scores. Like if you had given a CSAT or NPS score of below like a seven, basically, I might kick the price increase or I might do a little price there's a whole host of things depending on the circumstance, but you want to look at that data. And then when I send you the email and people, it's such a high leverage email, but people suck at it so poor badly because the amount of emails I see that are like, inflation's up, our costs are up, we're going to charge you more. It's like, it's such a terrible email. And the email you should send, and this is, I'm going to tie it back to the value metric is, hey, Melissa, last year you made $100,000 on Teachable. Congratulations. That's amazing. By the way, in the last six months, we also launched this new creator academy. We're seeing so many people use this. And then we launched, remember that feature, that feature A? We launched it and we noticed you use it every single week. I just pulled in a bunch of value data and you're primed now as a user to be like, yeah, yeah, I didn't like that bug, but I did make $100,000. That's great. Then I'm going to go in that email and I'm going to say, hey, For us to continue to invest in making Teachable better for you and your company or just you if it's a consumer product, we have to raise our prices. We want to hire this. We want to do this. We want to do that. Now it's connected to you because you're going to say, oh, they're hiring more DevOps engineers. That means it's going to get more stable. Amazing. It's always a shock no matter how good this value statement is. So then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, but because you've been with us for so long, Melissa, you've been 
since 2016. That's amazing. We're going to raise prices on everyone else. All these new people who aren't loyal to us, you know, you're not going to say that, but you get the gist. But for you, because you've been with us for five years, six years, whatever it is, we're going to keep you at your existing price for the next six months. That's $3,000. We're giving you $3,000, Melissa. It's not really giving, but you get it. And then after that six months, we're going to raise you to the new price. If you have any questions, let us know and we'll work something out. And then my favorite part, just to close this out, is I like to add, P.S., if this materially impacts your business or you, if it's a consumer product, let us know and we'll work something out. Because it's for two people. One, it's for people, you're kind of in this camp where you don't want your price increase. But if you read that, you believe all the value statements, you're going to go, fine, I'm probably going to give a lower NPS score next time, but I'm going to take the price increase. Or you're going to go, hey guys, you're increasing my price. I was down for two weeks. I lost a bunch of money because of that. You can't raise my price. And then the CX rep is probably going to be like, oh, you're fine. We'll, we'll keep it at your existing price for a year and negotiate with you. And that's obviously for other people who are actually affected because you don't know what your customers are all going through. Right now, you should be raising prices even though there's a bit of a downturn, not because like you want to be a stickler, but because the people who chose you who aren't churning from your product, you have some pricing power there. Like They chose you and you can expand the revenue on them. You have to do it right, but you want to give people that out to have that conversation. But I think most of the time people miss everything I just talked about and they don't tie it back to the actual value that their customer sees in the product. If I didn't know that, why would I accept a price increase? I'm just begrudgingly going to do it rather than being like, not happy about it, but accepting of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a much better way to actually do that. And it's very rare that I see people execute that as well as you just put it out there. Like everybody does what you said. Well, it's inflation. We're raising our prices. And it's like, that's your problem, not my problem. I also have less money in my pocket now because of inflation. Yeah, you're reminding people that their life sucks too. Yeah. Both of our lives suck, so I have to suck more. It's such a weird, like, I, I don't think anyone's ill-intentioned. I just don't think they think through it. They're like, I have this project and I have to get this email out. And it's like, yeah, but let's think through like the perception of it and make sure we're doing that price to value that you just talked about to kind of keep things moving. Yeah, I actually saw this in action once. I was working with a company that did tax software and they had a low cost model for smaller companies that were out Mm. there. And the companies were actually giving them feedback and saying, you charge too little for this and we're worried you're going to go out of business. So can you please charge us more money because (laughs) we really need you and we want to make sure you survive. You can be priced too low. A lot of people don't realize that. Like about 80 to 90% of the companies that I see, the ones I work with and not, so there's a little bit of confirmation bias there, are underpriced. And it's just most people are underpriced because you pulled a number out of the air or copied someone else and no one does their pricing homework. So you like copied the dumb kid in class typically when you're copying a competitor or something like that. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening is you end up sometimes being priced too low, especially European companies, because I don't know why, there's some psychological thing. And then we'll see companies that will 10x their price overnight for new customers. Not only does their like revenue per customer go up, obviously, but their conversion rate goes up. Because there's so many people who didn't trust that the product actually could do what it was doing, or they had the feeling of like, there's no way this is sustainable, so I'm not even going to try to like get onto this platform or whatever it ends up being. That's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense, though. It's true. Like, you look at things and you go, oh, that's really cheap. It must be bad. It's a psychological phenomenon. We, we have a perception bias. You know, if it's something cheap, like it's disposable or it's only for a short amount of time, it's not something you're going to get into a 
for lack of a better phrase, long-term relationship with from a subscription perspective. So we're funny creatures and I think that's good and bad, but you have to kind of study it a little bit to take advantage of it from a pricing perspective. So one of the other things that caught my eye when I was asking you to come out here is you made this beautiful thread about Twitter blue and about the packaging and pricing around there. And I don't think we talked a lot about packaging yet, right? Which goes hand Mm. in hand with pricing. We're talking about how much should you charge per subscriptions? But I thought that was such a great example of both packaging and pricing and how you can think about charging different things for different pieces of value for your product. So can we talk a little bit about where Elon is getting yeah. his Twitter blue Elon, wrong? call me. No. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, though, Elon, I, I was yeah. like retweeting. I was like, Elon, call him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So when you looked at Twitter blue and what you wanted to do, what did you think? The basic idea, to give a little bit of background, obviously, if you're not on Twitter, which a lot of us are if we're listening to this, but basically, Elon Musk bought Twitter. His whole thing is we need half of Twitter subscription revenue, so billions of dollars in subscription revenue to make this work because the ad model's tough, blah, 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 blah. And the initial idea was this $8 a month subscription where you could get verified, you know, the little check mark. And I thought when I wrote that thread, I thought verification meant actually uploading your ID like Facebook. It turns out it wasn't that. It was literally just, you just pay $8 a month, you get a blue check mark. So I wrote that thread with that in mind. And I was like, this is dumber than I thought it was. And it's even worse. <laughs> yeah, it's so much worse. I thought it was bad just because I was like, well, we're not really like optimizing here. But it was like, no, 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 no. And you know, bless them for moving fast, right? Because I think that that's important because Twitter was, it's been so slow with innovation. but. Here was kind of the issue that I saw with this, and to give a little bit of the backstory further. So if you think about a $100 million subscription business, I don't know how you classify your investment career now, but you were an investor for a while. And all of a sudden now, when you look at the world of like a $100 million subscription business, that business is not valued that highly. That's like a $3 billion valuation. Not in this market, in the last market we were in, right? So my premise was basically like, no, 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 no. We need billions of revenue. We have to cut this up to find the different layers of revenue because Twitter doesn't have the advantage that LinkedIn has or some of these other social media apps has where they have a lot of people willing to convert at $8 a month. It's just not something that you typically see unless you're like a very professional network like a LinkedIn. To give you the breakdown of what you were kind of suggesting, I basically went in and I said, they should have a very cheap 100 bucks a year subscription plan for verification. My assumption was verification was actual verification. This not only gives them some revenue to cover the costs, but theoretically, you can still show ads to those people and they're verified because there's a Twitter bot problem. So it kind of helps solve the bot problem. You can get more advertising. Then it was like, great, that's a $100 million, maybe a $50, $100 million line of business. Then I think Twitter goes premium because I think the thing that Twitter has that the other networks don't have is you have this like very captured class of people, like the iPhone crowd versus the Android crowd, where it's you teach at HBS, I'm an exited founder. We use Twitter a lot, probably more than we should. And we're probably willing to pay more than $8 a month if there was enough stuff in it. Now, not everyone, but there's a few hundred thousand people who are willing to pay 50, 100 bucks a month if there were some like really good features and we collected actual data on this to verify this. So all of a sudden you have hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue there. Then there's business folks. 
the business folks, they want to control their brand. They want to be able to do a bunch of different things. They're willing to pay hundreds of dollars a month en masse. So there's another few hundred million dollars of revenue. And I just kind of went through this. And then the kind of climax of this was, how do we get even more subscriptions? Well, we can get people to subscribe to creators very similar to like an OnlyFans or a Patreon. And the advantage that Twitter has is I log into Twitter every day. I don't even see some of my Patreon notifications to even go over there. And so Twitter can have that captive audience. And then maybe I subscribe to 1.2 creators and all of a sudden there's a bunch more like subscription revenue that Twitter basically can get. And I think the lesson there is multi-product, even if you're a B2B company is huge because you have different constituencies and different willingnesses to pay. And then also just really thinking through those use cases and where the value is. Because one of the biggest mistakes people make in pricing is they try to be everything to all people. I wish Twitter was big enough where an $8 a month product just kind of sustained billions of dollars in revenue. But it's just really, really hard to build a social network. Like LinkedIn has more subscribers and more users than Twitter does. And they're able to monetize through that and ads, whereas Twitter just hasn't been able to get over that hump. So hopefully that was enough context to make it interesting if you didn't see the thread. But there's a lot of lessons there for Elon and you know just pricing in general. Yeah, I think that thread was really awesome. And it did hit home on a lot of stuff. Even you pulled in all these calculations, which I thought was amazing too, to show even if we priced it this way, we won't get to billions yeah. of dollars, which feels like what you should do in pricing 101 is like model it out and be like, yeah. worst case scenario, best case scenario, and try to figure out how much money you get. It's a big red team with pricing changes is like, okay, hold on a second. If we do X, does it even do anything? This is why I was saying, if you're not going to do more than a 10% price increase, it's probably not worth it because most of us don't have the user volume where like 5% is significant. Some of us do, but it's got to be worth the squeeze and doing some calculations on stuff like even this is what we did with ProfitWell, right? Like our metrics product. This is why it ended up being free because we were like, okay, we did pricing research. We discovered that a startup would pay 50 bucks a month, maybe a hundred bucks a month. We didn't see that much lift when we went to like a pre-public or a public company in terms of willingness to pay. Like you normally want to see your smallest customer, or your largest customer have 20x or more difference because that's how you get expansion revenue. But we were like, well, there's only like 25,000 SaaS companies. There's only 150,000 subscription companies. Even if they all paid 50 bucks, it's a cool business. It's not a multi-billion dollar business. And not all of them are obviously going to pay for that. So that's the type of napkin math that can save you from going down a path that is very, very dangerous in terms of sucking up a bunch of resources and then just really trying to grind in a market versus have that market kind of pull you. Yeah. And it felt like too, with the Twitter example, one of the things you brought up was the businesses. Like Twitter yeah. is a prime spot for a lot of customer service now. I know it's the only way airlines will actually answer me if, if I tweet yeah. them. <laughs> but, like four people will DM you from the airline and you, in the same thread and you're like, yeah. who has context and who doesn't? I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. But at least it gets done. <laughs> I'm yeah. like trying to call them. And it feels like that was a huge opportunity that was kind of missed for persona segmentation too of like, who do you charge for? Who do you not? Instead of yeah. like going after the consumers with a marketplace like that. Yeah. I think it's just hard. That was a good lesson. And like this stuff's really hard because you can have one of the most success, measurably successful people in the world, depending on how you met, if you're measuring it from like a business perspective. But it's a really tough problem too, because I think that social media and I'm not, I've never built or worked at or studied that much social media kind of unit economics. It's just, 
the ad model is the wrong model, but it's kind of the only model that's really worked for a lot of folks. And so sustaining these types of things gets really difficult. And you'll have even in B2B products that are like that. You'll have products that are just so difficult to monetize and you kind of have to make a decision like, should we be much even trying to monetize this or should we like give up or should we give it away for free? And oftentimes the answer is like, this could be a really good free product for a feeder for something else, especially in B2B. And I think that that'll be a more powerful way to kind of quote unquote monetize these products rather than like going direct when it just doesn't seem like it's a viable business model. That's interesting. If you were thinking about Twitter, do you see it as a potential feeder for something? I think LinkedIn does really, really well because they have a premium ad network. And then on top of it, they have a subscription that people begrudgingly or are fine paying for, and they're willing to pay real money. Sales Navigator is not 10 bucks a month. The recruiting product is not 10 bucks a month. And I think that's the thing that was in that thread as well, is that there's a lot of people who don't realize that I would rather have 100,000 users at this much higher price than a million dollar users at a dollar per user, especially in like a B2B context. The numbers are obviously much smaller in B2B, but it's just one of those things where that is a better way to kind of get up the mountain because those people don't churn as much either. It's a true purchasing decision. Like, am I truly going to want this product at this price point? rather than just getting in what's called the Amex effect, where I'm just willing to swipe the credit card and like I forget about it. And then I'm like, oh crap, can I get a refund? That's the thing when you think about it through lifetime value and not just through that price, it's also really powerful. For LinkedIn, there's a world where I have now realized why integrations of companies are so difficult. Before this acquisition, I was like, why is it hard? I don't understand why everyone says it's hard. Now I'm like, oh my God, it's so hard. Even when everyone is really well-intentioned and the vision just perfectly aligns, it's like, not even just, oh, we need to combine these systems. It's all the like, we got to figure out this way and that way. So that's what LinkedIn has been suffering from for like years now with Microsoft, because obviously these are very large entities. I do think there's a world where that starts to be a feeder for Discord if Microsoft can get that purchase, which they've wanted to do before, or some of the other Microsoft suite. Microsoft is really, really good at bundling. And they bundle in ways that no other company can. For example, if you look at the Microsoft Office bundle, you get Skype, you get Teams, you get all of this stuff, and you end up not using a lot of it. But there's so many companies that are like, why would I buy Zoom and why would I buy this and why would I buy that when this includes everything else? And I'm sure there's something that they could do with LinkedIn if they haven't done it already. Interesting. Yeah, I really like that. When you think of bundling too, I think one of the best examples out there is when Adobe went from buy Photoshop for thousand dollars to like, like get all this stuff for 32 bucks a month and yeah. wow was that like eye-opening that that could change so much it's funny because people who were used to buying the perpetual licenses a good portion of them were pissed and it was mainly because they were able to buy i don't know how relevant it is to a lot of folks but like we used to sell software on a license basis you know and like basically it wasn't SaaS. and what's kind of brilliant about that was every new iteration of the product, every new license you wanted to buy because the changes were so dramatic. Problem was, is like version 42 of Photoshop, the changes end up, it's okay, I can use version 40 or version 41. I don't really need version 42. It's a problem for Photoshop, it's a problem, or Adobe, it's a problem for the user as well because the pace of innovation is slowing because of the model, because there's no more money coming into it and therefore they're not going to be able to invest more into it. 
long story short, moving to the cloud was brilliant because it just dropped the entry point. Same thing with Microsoft Office, but it also was transition that needed to take place. And most people stopped complaining because there's not an alternative. There are alternatives now, but you know, Adobe bought Figma, one of the alternatives. So like they understand that market. I think that M&A, that corp dev shop is very good. A lot better than people give them credit for because it's Microsoft or Adobe, Microsoft kind of get the same vibe where they're like old school. It's like they're not as old school as you think they are. Yeah, people hated Adobe when they bought Figma. I just yeah. saw everything explode on Twitter and I was like, oh, okay. I thought yeah, it was. Yeah, but it's it. like Adobe's not going to, they're not going to be like, great, we're shutting it down. Use Photoshop. Like that's not, no, of course no. not. They're just like, we recognize this is a lightweight version of photo or, you know, a couple of products technically. And therefore we bought the thing that was going to kill us. Fantastic. I hope the deal goes through because I think they deserve this multiple yeah. that they probably wouldn't get today. <laughs> It is one of those things where like, they deserve a lot of credit. Adobe deserves a lot of credit for putting that deal together, even at that size of multiple. So one of the things you mentioned too was the differences between like licenses, one-time fee, and then subscriptions. And you see more and more companies now that are moving into the cloud. I think almost everything's on the cloud. But when I was working with Insight, we did a lot of move on-prem into SaaS and then yep. start to change the model of how we charge subscriptions. When you're like looking at your product and trying to figure out, should I do that? Do I move from my license model to a subscription model? What are the types of things you should take into account? So the first thing is getting your finance team aligned to Zora came out with this really cool, it's called a fish graph, where basically your costs are going to go up and then come back down because perpetual licenses are notoriously more expensive, but switching to kind of a SaaS system or a cloud system, it's going to go up. And then your revenue is going to go down because it's 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month versus 1,000 bucks for license. So it's going to go down and then it's going to come back up. And so that's kind of how you get this fish diagram. They made it into a fish. So it's just two lines. One goes up, one goes down. So the first thing is like just really getting your counting into place because if you're public, you need to really, there's not a lot of public companies that are, uh, there's some that are going private or going public, but there's not a lot of like big names that, you know, need to worry about this, but even a private company going and doing this with like serious stakeholders, you need to be ready to do this. And then I think it becomes about the transition point. You have kind of like a couple of options. So one, you're normally going to develop this in parallel. You're going to have your quote unquote last perpetual license kind of come out. And then you should hopefully have your cloud-based license ready to go pretty quickly. You can rip the Band-Aid off. This is what Microsoft did. Adobe kind of did this where it was, Microsoft was more, you will not be able to buy a new license of this. You have to buy the online product. So they didn't allow a transition period. What Autodesk has done for a lot of their products, they have a much more persnickety group of customers. What they started to do is they offered them next to each other, especially when the cloud offering wasn't quite as good yet because it was you know still coming out, but it was much cheaper. And then what some companies do is they start to increasingly make the perpetual license more expensive. And they'll come out with more releases, but they'll be less included in those releases and more expensive because there are people who want the perpetual license. Think of like chiropractic software, dentist software, stuff like that. People who want very serious like investments and they want to look at it you know, on one side of the balance sheet versus another. And so what ends up happening is all of a sudden, what some of these folks have done is they make the luxury item the perpetual license for that small group of people, they're able to invest that cash. And then they're able to slowly over time, it becomes the cloud product becomes 
better than the perpetual license just by a mile. So they start shutting down that luxury product. So it just depends on like what type of ripping the Band-Aid versus slow transition you want. And that'll just depend on your customer base and how fast your product team is. But I think that's a big second thing. And then maybe a third thing is just like, I don't know, your whole go-to-market model changes because it depends on the price of the software. But now an inside sales team looks a bit different. Your marketing looks a bit different. So you just kind of have to think about understanding as much as you can about this industry. This is where like hiring, I know people like crap on like a McKinsey and stuff like that. This is where they're really good. They're really good at the change management stuff. When people would come to us with these pricing transitions, the first few we took them because we were like, yeah, we can, we can set up your value metric. We can get you on the right billing system or like suggest the right billing system and help. But there's so much internal questions from the VP of this, the C-level of that, that this is where like a McKinsey really shines because they will put up with those conversations. <laughs> When we're like, we delivered the data, what else do you want from us? We'll help a lot more than that, but it's just to show the kind of extreme kind of between the two. So yeah, those are just some things to kind of consider. All the measurements are different. MRR, you have to teach people what MRR is. It's not the easiest thing oftentimes to understand. So you have to kind of really change manage your business for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I feel like a lot of companies I've worked with who made this transition, they don't anticipate all that. They're just like, we're going to the cloud because the cloud is the new exciting thing. Yeah. There was a Gartner report about moving to the cloud and that's why we got to do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. And the, the big thing I saw too, like coming from a product perspective is what you said at the beginning, they don't anticipate the costs. They don't understand that it costs money to go from on-prem to hosting your own databases. Well, their the entire infrastructure is made for perpetual licenses, like their entire product team, how they ship code, everything like that. And so that's how they pack, not physical, but not packaging like this feature here, this feature here, the packaging of how they like send a license, you know, like that type of a thing. So that's interesting. I think it's like 70% of software products are now cloud-based. So we're going to near the end. We crossed 50% last year. I can't remember, but yeah, it's, it's growing. And anything under like two years old is all cloud. There's very little perpetual licenses anymore. Yeah. It's really interesting because it feels like that's just a pricing problem, but it's a whole company problem is what it really looks like. And people are like, oh, I just want a subscription, but they're not really thinking about all those things that go into actually changing yeah. to it. So if you're a chief product officer, I guess leave our audience with this. If you're a chief product officer or a product leader, you're in this company or an executive and you're thinking I've got pricing issues or I really want to look at pricing, what would you advise them to do to start looking into their pricing? Like, do they hire somebody? Do they go to a McKinsey? Like, where do you start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you're, let's just go with like a SaaS or a subscription company, you weren't a perpetual license or an on-prem solution like we were talking about. The first solution is get buy-in from either the board, if you're big enough, or the board and the exec team of just like, we're going to make this a core competency, meaning like we're going to get good at pricing, but just like it took us a while to get good at product, retention, content, sales, whatever it is, it's not going to happen overnight. And that means we're, we're going to start with some big things, but it, we're going to implement over that quarter of a quarter. This is going to be a thing. Form your pricing committee. You can hit me up. I wrote a big article and have a video on like how to form pricing committees and stuff, but it's, it's just getting the right people in the room, making sure like you just have a tempo and a cadence. Tempo is a really important thing here, like how often you're like pushing stuff. And then once you have like that buy-in, now it's, do we have the expertise internally? 
Pricing is not hard. It just is like a process. And sometimes you're uncomfortable if you haven't done it before. But then if you don't have the right folks internally, I think if you need like massive change management where you need someone to help with a lot of the internal politics, let's say like you just have really, and you'll judge this, but really hard-headed execs that you're going to have to deal with, go hire McKinsey and SKP if you need the bandwidth, Simon Kutcher partners. If it's something where like you have a really good working team that gels well and is open to, we understand the cloud, we're open to learning, et cetera. We just need some bandwidth and we want the data and we're not necessarily cost constrained, but we don't want to pay for a bunch of handholding. That's when you can like come and hire a price intelligently or there's plenty of, you know, solo consultants that are also really, really good. But if you have the right product manager internally, that you can hire someone like us or an SKP for a little while and then not use us anymore. And then all of a sudden you can have your product manager. That's our success. Oh, you're shipping pricing without us? Great. We'll help you with the data if you need it. But then eventually you can probably do that yourself and maybe use our software if you need to. So I think that's kind of how I would think about it. But eventually you'll probably also hire someone full-time. If you're over 100 million in revenue, you should have someone full-time dedicated to pricing. And Autodesk, they have like six pricing people. They're still, we're still a big vendor of theirs and stuff like that because they have 130 products. So it's a little, little bit of a different thing. But yeah, I think it's one of those things where you want to make it a core competency and you want to lay that groundwork properly. Cool. Well, I learned so much from you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. If people want to go and read more about what you've written on pricing or reach out to you, where can they go? I'm Paticus on Twitter. It was a childhood nickname. So I just get ahead of that. What the heck is this guy? I'm also a PC at paticus.com. If you just want to email me, I've probably written or have data or have a video on the thing that you have a question of. We even did a, a video series called Pricing Page Teardown, where I think there's like a hundred episodes where we looked at a pricing page, broke it down, what was good, what was bad, all that kind of fun stuff. So we have a lot of content on pricing. I don't check my LinkedIn messages. I'm trying to figure out how to handle my LinkedIn cesspool of my inbox. So just know that if you send me a LinkedIn message, I probably won't get it. So yeah, hit me up on email. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Product Thinking Podcast, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'll be back next Wednesday with another Dear Melissa and make sure that you submit your product questions to me at dearmelissa.com.